There has been much talk in the news recently about transit and its place in America's transportation priorities as it relates to the infrastructure bill. Long overlooked at not only a national level, but also state and local, many cities and metropolitan areas are ill-equipped to have functional, high-performing transportation systems. As a result, many U.S. cities are plagued by low rates of ridership and are often on the chopping block because of poor financial performance. But what if I told you that such problems were caused not by the transit system itself, but rather the lack of your city's transit supportive policies? In this week's episode, we will cover the most common policies your city is getting wrong and what you can do to change them in order to have transit supportive policies. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is City Planning Matters. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of City Planning Matters. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a topic, as I mentioned in the top of this episode, that's been in the news a lot recently, and that's transportation. Um, And the major reason that it's been in the news, as many of you know, is because of this infrastructure bill that's being proposed as part of the Biden administration. And one of the things that makes this bill uh, particularly interesting to planners is uh, because of a couple of reasons. Uh, First is that uh, it's looking at infrastructure in terms of a a much broader lens uh, than traditionally infrastructure bills, especially at the national level, uh, look at at those types of policies. Uh, And what I mean when I say that is traditionally our uh, DOT transportation bills are looking primarily at things like roadway maintenance and bridges. And this is a lot more comprehensive in its scope as it relates to transportation, because now we're looking at things like rail, um, renewable energy, um, such as like car chargers for for electric vehicles. Um, But then also the other exciting thing is that the the transportation and infrastructure bill is, is looking at and setting priorities for things that are related to transportation. And so some of the things that they've been talking about is looking at, I don't know, housing costs, housing prices, which I talked about in a previous episode where we looked at how we have an entire generation that's priced out from owning a home in this country and looking at, you know, what are the related policies to transportation and accessibility um, that are creating some other interrelated issues within our country. And so it's really interesting and exciting that uh, planning seems to be taking a, a forefront role in this conversation, at least issues related to planning. Uh, but what we want to talk about in this particular episode is looking at transportation and transportation supportive policies. And the reason that we want to talk about that, as I mentioned in the top, is because a lot of times transportation is the scapegoat, which is that, you know, our transportation system in a particular city isn't working. And so therefore, it must just be because, you know, people don't want to take transit. And what as planners we need to realize and how we can help shape and reframe that discussion is not is that it's not always 
the transportation system that's problematic. It's the other interrelated policies to transportation that make the transportation system uh, not successful. And that's the intersection that I see with what's happening in the discussion with the infrastructure bill at the national level is that while they're talking about hard infrastructure, things like roads and bridges and trains and other types of rail, they're also talking about those interrelated and tangential issues to transportation that looks to make sure that at a national level, we're considering the whole breadth of issues that, that play into transportation. And so just to help frame the discussion for today, uh, let's talk a little bit about transit ridership within the US. So there was a Bloomberg article written in 2019 by Richard Florida that looked at transportation patterns among uh, some of the largest US cities. He did a lot of different graphics that, that looked at the rates of and modal split that people commute um, on a on a given day in a number of the largest U.S. cities, um, but the important thing to take from it, at least for purposes of our discussion, is looking at some of the national trends. So, uh, when we look at uh, transit ridership in the U.S., according to the article, about five percent of all Americans take transit to work. Um, the re- the remaining people are are going to be taking the other modes, uh, but seventy six percent drive alone. And so three quarters of all people are going to be, you know, in the entire U.S. are going to be taking their their car to work. And that leaves a very, very small percentage for all the other modes. And as I mentioned, then just a very small percentage of those quarter remaining trips to work, uh, 5% are taking transit. And, you know, within this overall national um, uh, breakdown, then there's obviously some differentiation and variation within specific U.S. cities where transit ridership rates are higher and lower that help make up that 5% national average. And so just some of the, the, the top cities for public transportation, uh, again, this is coming then from a transit uh, organization um, that they've published a report on a website that's called Smart Asset. Uh, where they look at the difference that's in time save between uh, people who drive and people who take transit, and then they rank kind of like the top cities. And so some of the top cities for transit in the U.S. are going to be, I'll just read off the top 10 here, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, New York, Seattle, Jersey City, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Oakland. And with a few notable exceptions, uh, a couple of surprises on there. But for the most part, when we're looking at this list, I mean, just to throw out some other names here, um, Portland, Denver, um, those types of places, uh, they're your usual suspects, if you will, uh, for who's doing transit well to begin with. Um, and, and then, you know, it's no surprise that they are, from this organization's perspective, some of the best places for transit. Uh, and, you know, we talked about in previous episodes some of the reasons why uh, transit may be successful uh, in other places, as opposed to, you know, some cities where we're seeing those 5% of, of people taking the trips by transit, it's a, it's a lot less than that in a particular city. And they're making up kind of like the lower range of, of that number. Um, 
And, and what we looked at specifically that was the study that surrounded that discussion was in the episode where we looked at walk scores and we looked at the role of land value in determining where people live. And so, you know, obviously in places where it's more expensive to live, people will make that opportunity cost, that decision to live closer to different amenities and are willing to pay a premium for, uh, for that location. And so uh, that's where we saw those high correlations between price per square foot and, and walk score. But there's also a correlation, interestingly, between land values and vehicle miles traveled or what's commonly referred to as VMT. And a major reason for that um, is because, you know, especially in places where housing prices are more expensive because of those land values, that time becomes more valuable. And so if you're interested in looking at uh, just from a data perspective, you know, what is, uh, you know, your particular cities or your block group for that matters, VMT, or even your housing and transportation costs, which we talked about again in that episode as being a very important thing. We're considering kind of like where people live and some of the costs that we consider not only housing, but also transportation. You can take a look at uh, the H&T index uh, which stands, of course, for Housing and Transportation Index. And you can actually download that data. I think it's 2017 or 2016 data for not only cities, but also block groups and kind of map out some of those spatial patterns. But again, as I mentioned for today's episode, really what we want to talk about are what are some policies that are transit supportive policies that maybe your city is doing or in some cases not doing that help or hurt your city's transportation um, system. And that this will be kind of the framework for evaluating maybe the causes of why your transportation system is succeeding or not working, and also give you some ideas in terms of some potential development zoning reforms that you can make uh, to help get in place some transit supportive uh, types of policies. And so coming up after the break, we're going to get into those policies and uh, looking forward to getting into that discussion. Okay, everyone, welcome back from the break. Um, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the transit supportive policies that your city can implement to help support uh, transit in, in, your, in your city. And so this, again, is by no means the only policies to take a look at, but these are some of the, the, the top uh, policies that as you start to analyze and see whether or not your city has things in place that are actually hurting your transportation system rather than the transportation system being the problem itself, uh, to start taking a look at some of these policies to, to get them in place and hopefully help make your transit system uh, successful. So without further ado, here are five policies that you can take a look at that are, that are potentially hurting your transportation system. So the first one uh, that is going to jump right off the page here is parking. And parking is a, is a policy that with very few notice, notable exceptions, um, pretty much all cities have. And these minimum parking requirements are a huge detriment uh, to your transit ridership. And so some of the things to take a look at uh, without getting into some of the specifics uh, here off the top to see whether or not your parking requirements are hurting your transportation system is take a look if you're able to 
with where your city has most of its off-street parking requirements. I know, again, in my city where I see the most surface parking is also the locations of where the most traffic is. And so in another episode, we talked about visualizing traffic congestion. You can look at either your highest uh, average daily trips by city streets, if you have that data, or you can look at reports of traffic congestion, which again, maybe will tell you a similar situation of where you're having the most traffic. Uh, and then see if it's also the same locations where there's a lot of off-street parking. Uh, that's the case in my city. Uh, and so as we think about, you know, okay, we want people to, you know, get out of their cars because these roads are congested. We're seeing a lot of traffic, but then we have a lot of parking. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If we're trying to get people out of their cars, why would we be doing off-street parking in such high quantities? Because all that's going to do is encourage more people to drive to those locations. You know, another thing that's kind of interesting as we look at parking requirements, just as an aside, is that having, um, you know, parking encourages people to drive, but it also is a lot of times your most accessible real estate, right? So, uh, where we see a lot of parking is along arterials. Arterial, arterials are some of the most accessible areas in your city. And so because they're really accessible, a lot of times they are your highest value property. And so do you want your highest value property in your city to be used for parking? A lot, I mean, obviously the answer to that is no, right? I mean, you prefer to see you know, a lot more improvements and have a lot more destinations along that particular route and not have it just be a bunch of surface parking. And so just from an overall perspective, it's going to be counterintuitive or, or counter to your city's financial goals to be a solvent city. You know, that's just outside of a transportation equation, but definitely plays into transportation. The other thing that's really important and that kind of lines up the next couple of items to take a look at is that parking has parking requirements have the effect of limiting density and in different types of housing typologies. And so when you think about it, right, every amount of area that you have to dedicate towards off street parking is land that can't otherwise potentially, unless you do structured parking, uh, be used for building. And so it has the effect of limiting density because you can't use that space because it's got to be used for parking. But then the other thing it does is it really limits housing typologies. Um, and so just from a, from a very basic perspective is that if your city, for example, like mine, requires two parking spaces for every dwelling unit. So if you want to do you know, a triplex, as an example, which could be like one building, but three different units within it, then you have to provide six parking spaces. And if the lot's not big enough to accommodate those six off-street parking spaces, even if the use is permitted, like you, you just can't build it, right? And so that is another issue with parking requirements is that having these minimum parking requirements, again, limits density and housing typology. And so if you're serious about addressing your city's transportation, look at where you've invested in that transit infrastructure. And maybe you want to get rid of the minimum parking requirements, uh, at least within the buffer region that helps support that transit route. And so, you know, a lot of times that metric is either a quarter mile or a half mile. Look within those areas and see if maybe there can be some support to getting rid of the minimum parking requirements. Again, people can still choose to put in parking. But again, if you want to be transit supportive, 
you should probably look to reduce that requirement. Uh, the other thing, like I said, that parking plays into again is then density. And so there was a study that was done several decades back that's still valid today that was done by uh, two gentlemen. Uh, first guy's name is uh, Boris Pushkarev, and the other guy's name is Jeffrey Zupan. And they looked at, you know, what is that critical density that's necessary to be transit supportive? And so what they said was that based on the size of a downtown, and so they looked at different size downtown areas, uh, they're the mega region, if you will, um, that would support that heavy rail uh, type of transportation. Um, the, like we're talking about cities the size of Chicago or LA, for example, that you need to have about 12 units per acre. But for those more medium-sized cities and looking at more of that light rail type of transit, uh, you need to be looking at uh, nine units per acre. And so again, take a look at your zoning code. See how many units per acre uh, your zoning code allows. Again, because most U.S. cities, the predominant land use pattern is the single family detached residential areas. I guarantee you, you're not going to be hitting those nine to 12 units per acre to be transit supportive. And so again, if your city is serious and wants to have this high performing or at least somewhat performing transit system, you got to look at densities. Uh, the third thing that you need to take a look at then, of course, is housing type. And so again, if we know what our target density needs to be, and in this case, or in this example, let's use those nine units to the acre, it's going to be really hard to get nine units to the acre and net density and net density is like once you remove the space required for sidewalks and curb and street it's gonna be really hard to get those with a single family detached residential only type of housing type and so if we assume for example and this is the general rule of thumb that 70 percent of an acre is developable after streets and parks and all those types of things the minimum lot size that you would need if you're just going to allow for single family detached would need to be 3,000 square feet, which, again, I live in Texas. Um, 3,000 square feet is all but unheard of in terms of minimum lot size. That's typical probably in the Northeast and some of like the older cities. Uh, but if your city is like mine, uh, 3,000 square feet is going to be a teeny tiny lot. And you really need to be thinking about permitting other housing typologies, again, like last episode, we talked about those missing middle housing options. And so it doesn't have to be high density, multi, multi-level type of apartment uses, right? I mean, we could just be talking about getting duplexes, getting triplexes, getting townhomes, quadruplexes. And if you do enough of those, it's going to be really easy to get to nine to 12 units per acre. But the idea is you got to get out of this frame of mind, this mindset that only allows for single family residential, because if you do, the housing that's going to be built is not gonna have that critical density that's going to be necessary to support transit. So the fourth thing, and it's gonna be related to the fifth item, is going to be access to jobs. And so outside of trips going home, the most common trip type that people take on a daily basis is their trip from home to work. And it also tends to be some of the longest trips that people make in a given day and at the same time during those peak hours. And so again, if you're thinking about, okay, we want to 
you know, have transit to, uh, you know, help reduce traffic congestion. Well, the only way to get people off the road is to either, you know, get them in transit, you know, a bus, for example, that takes up less space collectively than all those people driving individual cars. Or we have to look at how can we get those jobs and those clustering of jobs within walking distance or at least transit distance of that critical density. And so if you've taken the steps, you've reduced your parking requirements, you've increased density, you've increased your housing typologies, you get a lot of people, you know, living in a particular area, then that next step would be, well, you need to start introducing jobs to those areas because if you can create a job rich area, that will increase the chances that people take transit to those locations because that's that daily trip that has to take place. And if you have a really well-connected transit area that's that's reliable service and it's on time, people will take that because it's a trip that people don't want to take and sit in traffic. Uh, that's just a fact. So the last thing, again, that's going to be interrelated to this discussion is then just the importance of having other destinations. And so um, in data analysis that I've done, I've taken a look to see, you know, if we look, if we break up trips by mode, you know, and we have, you know, trips by car, trips by car passenger, by bike, by walking, by transit, we split them into two groups. You'd have your motorized trips, which I would consider like the personal automobile. And then you have all your other trips, right? And that's combining transit, walking, biking, that there's a high correlation between areas where people aren't driving to their destination and the number of destinations within, you know, that block group or that particular geography. And what that suggests is that people will walk or bike or take transit to locations when there's lots of destinations nearby. And that makes sense because the reason that most people take the car to their destination is because, you know, okay, I've got to go to this store and it's five miles away from my home. And then my second errand is maybe I got to go to the grocery store and the grocery store is another five miles um, from the first destination you go to. And so it's not realistic in a sense that uh, you would take transit or that you'd be walking or that you'd be biking to go to those different destinations because they're not clustered together. And therefore they're not within walking distance or transit distance from a realistic perspective. And if you don't believe me, think about your downtown, right? So one of the reasons that people walk around downtowns is because there's that clustering of businesses and business types. It's not just bars is not just offices is because there's a lot to do. Even if your downtown isn't super successful, you would see a higher rate of people walking or biking in your downtown than you would in a suburban area, just because there's the huge clustering of, of destinations that are close together. And so one of the biggest barriers, as you know, that prevents uh, the clustering of these types of uses is because most of our zoning ordinances and our zoning districts are set up to be single use. And so if you all you have are these residential areas, of course, people aren't going to walk or bike. I mean, there's nothing to walk or bike to, at least within that reasonable distance of, say, less than a mile. And so, again, if you're interested or trying to push this, this agenda forward, that's a very good agenda that you want people to be using transit, you gotta be realistic. You have to allow for, 
and people need to be realistic. A lot of times it's not the planners, right? It's the public who on one hand, you know, don't want the traffic congestion, but then also don't want to allow for non-residential uses in their neighborhood. And so you really need to take the opportunity to educate people that in order to become less car dependent, you've got to look at allowing for, again, the mixture of uses, the higher density, you got to be looking at different types of housing, and you got to be looking at these minimum parking requirements. And so the key takeaway here is that all of these different policies that were discussed today are interrelated. And the key to unlocking them all starts with parking, because if you don't do parking, then all the other types are not all the other policy changes are, are not going to work because they depend on that first step, which is got to legalize or at least give people the ability to make a decision on whether or not they're going to provide off-street parking. And so if your city is serious about having a functional transportation system, you should look at these policies. Oftentimes, the issue is with your development policies, which inherently encourage sprawl and not the transit itself. And one other note that I want to make here before we, we leave this topic and, and end this episode is that often the rationale for not supporting transit is because it's a money loser, right? So transit systems do not make money. The important thing is that it's not supposed to be a moneymaker. And that's why it's subsidized by the federal government, by the FTA, right? And so then if you make that argument, then sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to have a subsidized program or we shouldn't have a subsidized program. The counter to that is that so too are roadways, right? Uh, all the roadway network that supports cars and driving, that's subsidized too. It's subsidized by the state DOT, the federal DOT. There's also the gas tax that's in place to help fund the infrastructure. And then taxpayers are paying for roadway maintenance for your city as well. And so this argument that somehow, you know, transit should not be funded because it's not a moneymaker and that if we are going to be funding non non moneymakers that should we maybe not be funding street maintenance because that's a money loser too. And so it just what I want to do is help to frame the discussion in terms of how can we put this prioritization of automobiles on a level playing field with transportation. And the reality of the situation is, is that they are on level playing fields. You just got to help to frame that conversation. And that the second thing is that if your city is serious about having a transportation system that works, that you need to make sure that your development code isn't set up in a way that exacerbates auto dependence, that encourages sprawl, and discourages people from using transit. So I hope you uh, have enjoyed today's discussion. I hope that some of those ideas have maybe given you an idea of where to look and where to start to help making some of those critical changes. That again, if you wanna have successful transportation, you need to have transit supportive policies. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is City Planning Matters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen and rate the podcast so we can continue to improve the content of each episode for our listeners. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is Planning Matters.